Grab your Bible, if you would, and open it to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue our journey through Ephesians this morning. We're going to be in verses 17 through 32. Remember, friends, what we said at the beginning of this service, that it is God's fatherly agenda in my life and in yours to grow us to the point where we begin to take his word on its own terms, where we begin to let the scripture set the agenda for what's on our hearts and minds. We let God talk to us about what he knows is most significant. When we're young and immature, we always want to talk to God about what's on our hearts. As we grow up in him, he wants us to come to the place where we listen to what's on his heart. And that means taking his word on its own terms. We do that by verse-by-verse expository study, and we're in Ephesians. Uh, We've reached verse 17 of chapter 4. We're going to work down through verse 32 this morning. And can I tell you something that'll come as no surprise, and that is that, um, that I do stupid things sometimes. Relate to, if you can relate to that, right? Raise your hand. We all do. And usually it's because we don't really know something that we think we know. I like to tell the story about how not long after I was sent to Iceland for my first duty station back in 1982, uh, shortly after I arrived there, I saw a sign on the barracks wall. And the sign uh, invited people to sign up for something called the Polar Bear Club. Now, keep in mind, I was 18 years old at the time, right, so not worldly wise, And I'm also, as you know, kind of a history nut. And so I actually knew that the the little marine detachment that I was part of there in Keflavik, Iceland, had a nickname. They were called the Polar Bears. And so I thought that this was some cool thing to honor the history of the unit. And being new, I signed up. And it struck me as a little odd that we were supposed to meet at midnight on New Year's Eve, but I thought maybe it had to do with the the Viking celebration of the winter solstice or something, right? And so I said, well, okay, I can go with that. And, And so I signed up and then I showed up. I was a little puzzled by the note at the bottom of the sign up that said, bring a towel. That didn't compute in my world, but... When I got there at midnight on New Year's Eve, I discovered that it was on the shore of a lake and I saw some guys chopping a hole in the ice and I thought, well, that's weird. And then I saw some other guys who were there starting to strip down to their underwear and very slowly it dawned on me what the Polar Bear Club was actually all about. And of course, at that point, I had to pretend like I knew all along. And so... um, I am officially a polar bear, and can I tell you that it was cold. (laughs) It was like really, really cold. Yeah, I do stupid things sometimes, usually when I don't know what I think I know. And and here's why I tell you that story this morning, church, because of what Paul's going to talk to us about in this passage. God says that some of our knowing, some of our thinking is futile. Think about that phrase for a moment, futile thinking. We all think all the time about lots of things. God says some of it is futile. It's confused and wrong, and it it leads to disaster. But it's not wrong because people are merely mistaken, like they don't have all the facts. Instead, God is going to say to us that some of our thinking is wrong because we have drifted out of touch with him. Here's what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1. It says that we can't think straight. 
when we don't worship God. Listen to what the scripture says. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. The Bible says that although they, certain people, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And so their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. In other words, a human being detached from the regular habit of worshiping and giving thanks to God. Sometimes we think the singing is like, you know, a preamble before the offering and before the preaching. Actually, our worship is the highest point of our time together. Because it is in our worshiping that God spiritually resets our minds and hearts. And it is when you give yourself to worship that God enables you, helps you to think clearly, helps your thinking and mind move beyond the futile. Look at what it says at the end of that passage, verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. What a statement on much of our world these days. I read a story this week in the Bellingham newspaper about a group of buddies who, who got together and, and hatched what they thought of as a, a foolproof plan to steal an expensive car that they had noticed around town. It was a brilliant plan in their own minds. They thought it all through, or so they thought. As it turned out, they, they cornered the driver in a dead-end street just like they planned, and they mugged him, didn't, didn't harm him physically, but mugged him and restrained him. Then they took off with the car, headed straight to a garage where they had the whole car completely repainted a different color, switched drivers, and headed out of town. Seemed like a foolproof plan. The problem was that while they repainted the car, they didn't think to change the license plates. And so about an hour later... <laughs> Uh, a police officer on the freeway heard the call over the radio, saw the license place, pulled the car over, and the whole crew was in jail by dinner time. Now, what's amazing about that is they thought they had it all figured out. But their thinking, in fact, was futile. I love the comment by the police officer who was interviewed by a reporter afterwards. He said, funny thing is, they're probably making license plates now. <laughs> you know, didn't lead where they thought it would go. I think of what Forrest Gump's mama said, stupid is as stupid does. And God says that my thinking, your thinking, becomes foolish like that. It becomes futile when we are disconnected from him through the habit, the discipline of worship. You know, we hear stories like that and we laugh at the stupidity of it. But then we can fall into the same kinds of traps when we convince ourselves that that a drunken party will lead to joy. Or that stealing and lying in our business or our personal life will make us safe or secure. Or, or, or we conclude that crushing all our enemies will really make us happy. Or that ditching some promises we've made will make us free. I could go on and on with the kind of examples of futile thinking that we see around us all the time. God wants to teach us this morning that being smart, being wise, isn't only something that happens in your head. It also happens in my heart and in my everyday life. And it is only through the habit, the discipline of worship that our minds are made clear and free and able to think in a way that is not 
futile. I invited you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Follow along with me, beginning with verse 17. We'll break this into some bite-sized pieces. Here's what the Bible says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. This is God speaking to us, a father to his family. I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. There's that phrase again. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Boy, there is a description of the culture that we live in. And those are strong words. This is, this is kind of like the doctor talking when stuff's serious. Notice in this passage, friends, the, what, what I call the chain link of causality. You can see it clearly. One thing causes another. If you follow the path backwards through the passage, kind of like retracing your steps when you get lost hiking. Paul tells us in verse 17 that the end result of this path is something called futile thinking. But that that condition is preceded by a numbness to God that grows and develops in a life. You see that in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity. And through a hardening of the heart, you see that in verse 20, a, a hardening of the inside of us, the part of us that's meant to be alive and in connection with God. That it is those things that, that lead to the futile thinking. You know that phrase, lost all sensitivity? I find that to be incredibly challenging. I read a story in the newspaper this week about a little girl named Karina, nine years old. And Karina got in the news because she mailed a rock to the park rangers at the Great Smoky Mountain National Monument. Why did she do that? Because she went with her family to the park on vacation, and while she was there, even though she saw a sign that said, please don't take any rocks, she took one and took it home. And she got home and found that as the days went by, a sense of guilt and shame was inescapable. And so she took the rock, put it back in an envelope, wrote a note to the park rangers, apologized, and sent along her month's allowance in order to compensate the park for the taking of a rock. And we say to ourselves, oh, that's so silly. But we say that because we've lost her sensitivity to right and wrong. We say that because we've got to the point where such a thing maybe doesn't bother us like it would have when our hearts were purer, more innocent, more connected to God. It bothered Karina so much so that she mailed it back with an apology and a donation. It's that kind of losing sensitivity that the Bible says eventually leads to a futile kind of thinking, to a reasoning that leads us nowhere. And, and Paul uses another phrase to describe this process. He says that it leads to a, a, a life-controlling craving. Look at verse 19. A continual lust for more. When we lose sensitivity, then we can become addicted to the pursuit of trying to rediscover it in our own power. And it's a sad condition. 
when you have a, an itch that you can't scratch, when the numbness has not only separated you from the ability to feel, but from the cure itself. Paul says that's part of this process, this loss of sensitivity and this hardening of the heart can lead then to this continual lust for more because we're never satisfied. You know, when I read that phrase, I always think of a woman in the emergency room when I worked there, her name was Rose. And Rose would be brought to our emergency room usually every three, four weeks on an ambulance ride. When she came in, she'd be hooked up to IVs. She was quite an elderly lady. She'd be getting breathing treatments. You see, Rose had something called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which had grown and developed from a lifetime of smoking. She had literally degraded her breathing mechanisms so completely that, that she couldn't make it more than a few weeks, even with a lot of home medications. And she would have to be rushed to the ER again and treated again. And it was so sad to see her in such distress, unable to get a deep breath. But here's the saddest part of the whole story. One of the things we quickly learned in the emergency room was that when Rose came in, we had to search her gurney front to back. Because even though she was on the way to the ER in the ambulance, as a result of her smoking, Rose would always have cigarettes, sometimes more than one, hidden on her gurney. So that in the moment that we were able to restore her breathing, and she had a, a private moment. She could go right back to the habit that had put her in these awful straits. That's the picture the Apostle Paul is painting here. That this loss of sensitivity, that this hardening of the heart leads to the moment when we live with a continual lust that can't be satisfied. God doesn't want that for us. And so he says to us, I don't want you to live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Horribly in verse 19, the second half of verse 19, he describes a moment when people who go down that road give themselves over to whatever that particular sin is. They just surrender to it. They just say, this is what I do. This is who I am. Kind of like a heroin addict. You wonder when you see that person sitting by the side of the road as if they've completely given up. Yeah, they have. They've given themselves over. And to lose the desire to not give yourself over, that comes from that loss of sensitivity, from that hardening of the heart. So, friends, understand the idea is that the, the degeneration of a lifestyle results in this futile thinking and a disconnect from the life of God. And that always happens to people who refuse to worship him and to give thanks to him. He doesn't do this to them. They do this to themselves. You don't blame a power outlet when you're not plugged in. In the same way, life comes from God. And full life is impossible when we're disconnected from him. And so Paul says to us, God says to us in this passage, Hey, Greg, I don't want you to live in the futility of the thinking of the world around you. Instead... I want you to live in the truth that can only flow into you from me through the discipline, through the habit of worship. Show you how crazy futile thinking can get. I said to a friend of mine once who had rejected the Christian faith but, but often called me or came to me to complain about his life. I said to him one day, I said, hey, I noticed that you often complain about God when things aren't going your way, but I've never once heard you thank him when they are. What is that? That's futile thinking. That's empty reasoning. Church, the problem in our world is not that there's too much thinking. The problem is that there's too little. 
And there's too little because it is only a people in connection with the life of God who can think clearly. My friend was thinking, but his thinking was futile. God says to you and I in the strongest possible terms, look at verse 17, I insist on it. In the strongest fatherly terms, he wants us to live in a way that enables us to think clearly. And that is through the discipline, the habit of worship. Because it is that clear thinking that turns us away from the sin that makes us stupid from the sin that causes our thinking to be futile. I remember one time sitting with a group of men in a small group teaching through this passage, and I I asked them, I said, raise your hand how many of you are tempted by pornography in the midst of worship at church on Sunday morning? Nobody raised their hand. I said, how many when you leave church on Sunday morning think I'm going to race straight home and give in to my habit of pornography? Nobody raises their hand. Why? Because your thinking has become clear. Because in that act of worship, your mind, your heart are reset. Your spirit is renewed. And in that moment, you're thinking clearly. Why would you ever trade something good, your self-regard, for something filthy? Of course not. You're thinking clearly. That's what worship does. Church, please understand, your sanity and mind depends on living differently than this world. And that begins with the steady habit of worship as God ordained in his Ten Commandments one day in seven. Wherever and whenever you are, to find that time to worship him. Otherwise, our thinking becomes futile. Notice he says, he doesn't say we stop thinking. We're still thinking. But our thinking is futile, so futile that in fact, we don't know that it's futile. And that's the condition God seeks to deliver us from. Having said that, Paul goes on. Look at verses 20 and following. He says, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Christ. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, that futile thinking. You were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That whole phrase we could break down is futile thinking again to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there's three things to learn here. First of all, the first one is so obvious, but we forget it. And that is that following Jesus means turning away from sin. Following Jesus means turning away from this world's way of thinking, from the promises this world makes about satisfaction and freedom and security and wholeness, and instead turning towards God's way of seeking those things. Let me ask you, how has your lifestyle changed since you turned to Christ? If it hasn't, you didn't. But if it has then you did. That turning away is fundamental to Christian faith. Some people think that grace means sin doesn't matter. That's a mistake. Can you imagine a parent saying to her son, I love you, son, and so your heroin addiction doesn't matter? What would you think of a parent who said that? No, that parent would seek to rescue that son, that daughter from that condition, no matter what. That's the nature of love. So we mustn't ask God to say that. We mustn't say to him, God, these are my sins. I choose them. I need them. I want them. I'm going to walk in them. So please just love me anyway. God says, I can't do that, Greg. I can't do that. My love compels me to turn you in a different direction. 
God's word promises in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I love this. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. That godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow leaves no regret. There have been many times in my life, probably in yours as well, where you knew you had done wrong and you went to God and you confessed in brokenness and you said, I was wrong, I did wrong, I said wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. There's never a moment that I've done that and got up and say, I wish I hadn't done that. No, every single time I get up and go, wow, I needed that. God's word invites us to embrace that reality. Admitting you're wrong is the first step to being healed of your sin. And you will never be sorry for telling the Father that you're sorry. No one ever is. So following Christ means turning away from sin. That's what Paul's reminding us of. It also means, following Christ also means changing your underwear. You know that feeling you get when you've been wearing the same underwear for a whole week and then you change it? Of course not, right? You don't know that feeling. I, when I wrote this this week, I said, I hope nobody raises their hand because that's not a good moment. But of course you don't do that. Why, why don't you do that? Because you know your thinking is clear enough on this subject at least to know that that's not the direction you want to go in. So you wear clean underwear every day because your body and your mind and your soul can tell the difference. Friends, understand that the Bible says that a life of holiness is like wearing clean underwear, okay? And if you're not seeking it, it's because you've lost so much sensitivity that you can't tell how filthy it actually is. I tell the funny story about our son going off to Royal Ranger Camp many years ago. He's just a toddler, just a first grader, and he went off to camp. Mom packed his suitcase. He spent a week at camp. When he came back, not a single item in the suitcase had been moved. He was wearing the same clothes and underwear for the whole week, you know. Um, some of us are like that in much more serious ways. The only people who don't pursue holiness are the ones who can't feel how dirty their underwear really is. You know, when I was in the Marines, um, you know, there were times when we went out on maneuvers and we would be out for several days in a row and you would get so filthy, so unbelievably filthy that you just stopped caring. And then at the end of the exercise, when you would come back and you would peel off those clothes and you would shower, you would think to yourself, how is it possible that that smell can come from my body? <laughs> How is it possible that I was okay with wearing that? Well, in the same way, God challenges us to seek and to pursue holiness. And if we're not, it's because we've lost so much sensitivity that we're not in touch with how filthy things can actually get. Paul says, put off that old way of life. Put on the new self. Change your underwear. Because in your right mind, it's what you want. And he says, put on the new self. He, he says the new self is made new in the attitude of your mind. In other words, church, understand this. Following Jesus means dressing up like the saint you are becoming. It means that you agree to ask more of yourself because you know and understand that you are on a mission to become more than you are. So many of us fall into the trap of saying, God, I'm just glad you accept me as I am because I'm always going to be this way. And God says to me, no, Greg, that's not my plan for you. That's not my plan at all. 
I want to turn you into a saint, not just in word, but in deed. And so I'm calling you to put on a new attitude, an attitude of training, an attitude of ambition, an attitude of, of setting a goal for yourself of, of holiness, setting a goal for yourself of worship and intimacy with me and growing in the knowledge of my word, growing in your capacity to serve your fellow human being, growing in your capacity to love your enemies. God says, Greg, I'm setting a high agenda for you and I want you to dress up like it. I want you in your own heart and mind to put on this new identity. C.S. Lewis writes remarkably about this. He says, you know, we aren't surprised at all when our children play dress up. Because we say, well, that's what kids do. That's normal. They dress up like, like astronauts and businessmen and, and moms and, and doctors and whatever. He says, but the amazing thing is we dismiss their dressing up as if it's irrelevant. In fact... That's exactly what's happening. They're going to turn into those people and they're dressing up as part of the process. In the same way, you and I are called to put on the new self that understands it's on a mission, that knows it's called to become a saint. So often we simply say to ourselves, you know what, I'm just, I've reached a point where I'm content with who I am. Do you know that if you were sitting next to Jesus and you said that, he would say, well, Greg, guess what? I got news for you. You got a long ways to go, and I'm determined to get you there. That's why the Bible says he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God says, cooperate with this work I'm doing in you. Put on a new attitude. God wants you and me to know that when you don't change your underwear, it breaks his heart. So... What does that look like in everyday life? Let's finish there this morning, verses 25 and following. Simple, straightforward, practical stuff. The Bible says, verse 25, Paul having exhorted us to put on the new self, he then describes the new self. Verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now he's talking to believers in the church about the life of the church. Last week we explored that a little. He laid great emphasis on that. Now he's echoing that same idea. And he's saying that, hey, your identity and your experience of my life in you depends on not lying to one another, not deceiving one another, not trying to manipulate or prop up your reputation, not trying to pretend you don't struggle, but to tell the truth. You know, the Bible has some extraordinary words to say about this. Confess your sins to one another. How often does that happen? Yet life flows from it. He uses the image of a body. He says, you know, when a body hurts, it sends a message to the brain, to the heart, and says, I'm hurting here. And sometimes we don't do that. We put on falsehood, and we speak untruthfully to one another. Many of you know that, that I have MS. One of the realities of MS is that periodically, one part of my body will lie to another part. It'll say, this is happening. You're having a burning sensation. You're freezing in this part of your body. Or when it exacerbates, sometimes I'll, I'll run or walk, and when I put my foot down, my body lies to me, and the, the foot doesn't tell the, the rest of the leg to flex the muscle, and I'll stumble. And that's a picture of what happens when we deceive one another, when we aren't honest with one another, when we don't speak truthfully to one another. So Paul says, put off that falsehood. Stop it. Don't do that. The body doesn't work properly when you do that. And then he says, verses 26 and 27, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't, don't nurse that. Don't give the devil a foothold. Put away your anger daily. 
before you go to bed. Church, your temper and mine, hear me now, will not help us think clearly. In fact, it will result in futile thinking because it will present to us solutions to problems which aren't real because they're based on a deceitful desire to carry out our anger. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says that that leads nowhere. I love what James tells us in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. It can't. By its nature, it can't. And so the scripture says, hey, don't give in to it. Don't nurse it. Don't hold on to it. Each day, put it away. That's a big challenge. And when you realize that you're called to that high standard, then suddenly those prayers at the end of the day become incredibly significant. God, I've got to put away some anger. Number three, Paul in verse 28 says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. In other words, dedicate yourself to getting a job if you don't have one, some kind of service to your fellow human being so that you have something to give, even if it's just the service itself, even if it's just the act of serving in itself. Listen, church, giving, Jesus said, will bring us joy. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is more blessed, more joyful to give than receive. And you as a human being are designed to live on that joy. And it comes as we give. It comes as we serve. It comes as we enter into that reality. Understand this, friends. Work is God's blessing in itself entirely apart from the pay. We may not think so, But consider for a moment that in the original heaven, in the Garden of Eden, in paradise itself, which God designed before sin entered it, guess what Adam and Eve had? Jobs. They had work. Why? Because joy depends on it. So many people look for a way to not be required to work when in fact it's the road to joy and to find some way to do that again. Even if it's just the serving itself, maybe it's a volunteer thing, but find a way to work because joy depends on it. The joy of feeling like I'm contributing, that I'm part of the whole. Verse 29, the fourth thing, we're almost done. Paul says, it's a big deal. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know, we hear that and we think to ourselves that this command is only for the benefit of others, but in fact, our Bible teaches us that self-control flows from the control of your tongue. Many people are seeking to get control of their lives without getting control of their tongues. It's impossible. It's like trying to drive your car without using the steering wheel. And that image is very specific. James tells us in chapter 3 that your tongue is like the rudder of a ship, that it's like the reins of a horse, that it is the steering wheel of your life and mine. And to gain control of the tongue is to gain control of your life. And by the way, your tongue includes social media. That's part of how we speak in this day and age. I've sat with many husbands over the years whose marriages were on the rocks. And very often they ask me how to start healing their marriages. And very often one of the first things I say is, do you swear? Do you use foul language occasionally? Well, yes, I do. Stop. Well, what's that got to do with anything, they say. And there's an example of futile thinking. Because self-control flows from the government of your tongue. 
But very often they'll look at me like I'm crazy. I came for marriage counseling. I'm giving you marriage counseling. It begins with your tongue. It begins right there. Paul exhorts us to realize that, to remember that, to understand that because we are his people and he wants us to live above the futile thinking of the world around us. Finally, last thing. The scripture goes on in verses 30 and following. Paul says this. Do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, all brawling and slander, every form of malice, and instead be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. You know, once again, we talked about it last week. Paul circles around to, to this being part of the local church in a gentle and patient and persistent way. But this time he uses a phrase that is very personal and full of emotion. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30. There's two ideas here. The first is that we, hear me now, church, we're almost done. We experience God's Spirit partly as a collective mood. Now, I would be the first to remind you that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it, he's a he. He's a person, but we experience him as a collective mood, and he doesn't want us to get in each other's way of experiencing that. When I was in Bible college, we had this marvelous professor. His name was Dr. Picote. He was there for more than 30 years. He was a spiritual giant, and he brought into every moment a, a mix of seriousness and love and patience and holy fire, and when we were around him, we felt it. But there was one guy in one class who was just so loud and, and so out of control that he was constantly detracting from that mood that we all hungered and thirsted for. God says to you and I, don't do that to each other. Don't do that to each other. Instead, understand that that mood is real. But then the second thing that Paul is emphasizing here is that, that God is personally involved in your life and mine. He's not administratively involved. Because of this, we can bring him grief. When I sin, he doesn't file paperwork and issue a ticket with a fine. Instead, his heart hurts. His heart hurts. A man told me once in counseling how his daughter had stolen several hundred dollars from him when she was young. And, and with tears in his eyes, he said, it's not the money I would have given her that and a lot more if she asked. And we hear that and we understand that. That's what it means to grieve the Spirit of God. Paul says to us, don't do that. Because what happens is then you, what that father was grieving was that she had separated herself from him in her own heart by what she had done. And that's the pain. The dad wanted to get past that. The dad wanted to restore that. The dad wanted to renew that relationship but because she wouldn't confess what she had done even though he knew she had done it then there was that disconnect inside of her. And God doesn't want that for us. And so in all of this passage, what Paul is saying to me, what he, God is saying to you and I is that, hey, your thinking will go astray. It will lead you astray. It will be futile. Unless you say to yourself, hey, God, I know that you've called me to become a saint, so I'm going to begin to act like one. I'm going to begin to live like one. I'm going to choose that as my direction. I'm not here just to drift. I'm not here just to wait. I'm here to become. I'm here to grow up in you, God. Because that is what makes my thinking clear. 
I love to tell the story about my son's futile thinking when he was a toddler. Our family was just getting ready to go to Disneyland. We lived in Idaho at the time. It was a trip we'd looked forward to for a long time, and, and he was excited, and we were excited. We were going with another family, including his best friend, so it's the best possible situation, but just the weekend before we were heading out, we drove by the mall there in Moscow, Idaho, and there was one of those little traveling carnivals there. You know the one I'm talking about. It had like six rides, you know, and you're not even sure they're bolted together properly. You know what I'm talking about? And Isaiah looked out the window and he saw it. He's like, ah. I said, son, no, we're going to Disney World. <laughs> we're, we're going for the whole thing. I said, you wouldn't want to go here instead. Yes, I would. <laughs> I want to go there now. That's futile thinking. And that's what God wants to redeem you and I from when we were getting off of the Space Mountain ride at Disneyland, a few weeks later, I turned to Isaiah and I said, would you trade this for the carnival at the mall? No. Exactly. So God calls us to put on the new self created to be like him in righteousness and holiness. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Close your eyes. Give yourself and those around you a little sacred space. Perhaps right now in this moment, the Holy Spirit is calling you to put on the new self, to turn away from sin, to have your head cleared by the worship of God. It's a gift he's seeking to give you. It will leave no regret. But right here and right now, Maybe you need to say, yes, God, I turn away from that sin, that pride, that anger, that lust, that greed, that fear. In this moment, he invites you to turn away from it so that your head can be clear and so that you can know the joy that he intends for you to live with. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your scriptures that speak life to us as we go out today. Let it be with the awareness that we belong to you and so we're called to grow up in you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends?